The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I would like for you to turn to the uh, book of John, chapter 20, if you would. John, chapter 20. And it is a privilege for us to be here tonight to come to the Lord's table. I always do like the first Sunday night of the new year. For many years, uh, this night has been a time for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Of course, we do it uh, throughout the year at other times. But every year, the very first Sunday, we have the Lord's Supper. And it's really appropriate, I think, for us to, to do this on a night like this and start the new year out in the remembrance of the Lord's death. And so we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to do this. Now, I want to call your attention. I said John 20, I think. I Actually, I want you to be in John chapter 12. And so if you're in 20, turn to John chapter 12. And I like this particular scripture at this particular time because the events of this chapter prompt us to think about some of the topics that we've been discussing in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we read here is not really a parallel account of things that we've already studied in Matthew, but there are some very similar things that take place in this chapter. To give you an idea of that, in verse number 23, Jesus speaks of being glorified. And next week I'll start a message on the glory of Christ as we speak about the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And in verse number 24, he speaks of his death. And we've noted in our study of the 16th chapter how that Jesus began to teach his disciples very clearly for the first time about his death. In verses 25 and 26 of John 12, Jesus speaks of losing our lives for his sake. And in return, we receive eternal life as our reward. And for those of you that were here this morning, that was the subject of the morning message. We talked about giving up our lives, sacrificing self for Christ and taking up our cross. In verse number 27, he speaks of his mission, that he came to this world with one purpose in mind, and he came to give his life as a ransom for sin. And we've recently studied in Matthew that the path that Jesus took to the cross was the predetermined plan of God. That this was determined by the, from the foundation of the world that Jesus would come to die for our sins. And then in verse number 28, the Father speaks from heaven and says that he will glorify Christ. And again, in the 17th chapter of Matthew, in the transfiguration, God the Father spoke from heaven and he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So these are not parallel accounts of anything that we've studied yet in the Gospel of Matthew, but the events that happen in this chapter are very, very similar to the same or similar themes as what we have studied already and will study in Matthew. Now, I want to begin reading in verse number 20 tonight. But before I do this, I want you, you, you just might take a moment to peruse verses 12 through 19, and you'll see that those verses refer to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week. And the people came out to meet him, and they took palm branches, and they laid them in the way of Jesus as he came into the city. And that caused the usual jealous reaction from the Pharisees, 
They were consistently teaching against Jesus, trying to turn the people against him, but the people didn't listen. At least at this point, they weren't listening. And so in uh, verse number 19, they very snidely converse between themselves, and they say, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the whole world is gone after him. And so as Jesus came into Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees were disappointed that the people were receiving him so gladly. And as we all know, that would change very quickly. And by the end of this week, Jesus would be crucified and put into the tomb. Now we pick up our reading with verse number 20. And here it says, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast, The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was the Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die... It bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. This is really a a great passage of Scripture. It deserves much more time than we can spend on it tonight. I mean, this is one of those passages that I would choose, and we would have four or five parts to talk about what's taken place in these few verses. So you'll excuse me. We're not preaching a very long sermon tonight. Uh, we're not going to. I'm just going to give you a few thoughts to think about as we go into the supper this evening. Now, the first thing that I look at and I see in the passage that I think is a little bit unusual is what we read in the 20th verse, and here we find the request of the Gentiles. Verse number 20 introduces us to a to a group of people that were present in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And these are not people that are native-born Jews, not like most of the people that were there that uh, were there for uh, Passover to celebrate that. These are not native-born Jews. They're not blood Jews, but these are Gentiles. These are Greeks. They are Gentiles that have been proselyted, proselytes to Judaism. And so they came also to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And these Gentiles had been converted to Judaism because they recognized that Israel's God was the one true God. And these Gentiles were also aware of Jesus' ministry. They were aware of all the miracles that he had done, especially a miracle that had taken place immediately preceding this. And that was the time when Jesus was in Bethany and he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
Now it seems that much of the commotion of Jesus coming into Jerusalem at this time, at the beginning of the Passion Week, was prompted by this miracle that had happened at Bethany. People were talking about this, that here was a man that was dead that Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they came to see Jesus, the one who was able to do the miracle, but they also came to see the one who had been dead. Here was a man who was up and walking around who'd been dead for four days in a tomb. And so they wanted to come and see that, to meet them. Now in verses 20 through 22, these Grecians, the Gentile proselytes, thought, well, this, this fellow Jesus is a famous person. He, he's done great miracles. And what we would really like to do is just meet him. We just love to talk with him. Much like we would any famous person. If we hear that a famous person was going to visit us, I'm sure there would be people lined up everywhere to talk to that person, get to know them, and maybe they would say, you know, I met that fellow, and they make, think that makes them look a little bit better because they know such a person. That, that may have been some of the thought as these Grecians came to see Jesus and to talk with him. And I think it's interesting that the one they chose to be the intermediary was Philip. And perhaps they chose him because Philip is a Greek name. And they may have thought that he would be more disposed to entertain their request. And so they asked Philip if he would take them to Jesus. Philip was more surprised than anything by this, and he wasn't quite sure if he should take them to Jesus. So he sought counsel on the matter. He went to find Andrew, and he asked him. And so both Philip and Andrew went to see Jesus with this request. Now the important point that I want you to see is the recognition of these Gentile proselytes. It appears here that they know that he's the true Messiah. Now, I said they're not native-born Jews. These are not people like those of Israel who had been specifically given a promise that the Messiah would come from the bowels of their nation. The Jews didn't believe in Jesus And whether these Greeks had come all the way to the recognition that Jesus was the Messiah, where they really understood what Jesus was about to do and who he was, we don't know. We don't know if they did. You know why? Because the Bible does not say that Jesus spoke to them, that Jesus entertained their request to let them come and meet him and talk to him. Now, folks, that only heightens the curiosity of the scene that we find here. Because as you and I know, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And what we would expect him to do, and and what we teach today, is that he's going to talk to anybody. He doesn't refuse anyone. He listens to everybody who comes to him. But that's not the case here. Because Jesus does not entertain the request of these Greeks to, to talk with him and to meet him. And there's reasons for that. And the reasons, I think, are that Jesus had to be thoroughly rejected by his own people before he was ever going to open up the way of salvation to Gentiles on mats. Now, his death was necessary. He must be lifted up on the cross and then be rejected by his own people as both Messiah and the King. And that has to happen before he receives the worship of Gentiles. Now, this evening, before I came into the service, I sat down for just a moment and I was reading back over this text and I happened to notice in my Schofield Bible that Schofield has a note on this that I hadn't seen before. And it appears, or it does, Schofield's note here agrees exactly with what I just said. 
That's a smart man. That's all I can say about him. Uh, but he, he agreed with what I said. So Schofield didn't have everything wrong. He does have a few things. He has some things that are right also. But um, uh, that note that, that he puts in there just perfectly agrees with what we just talked about, that before Jesus would ever entertain the Gentiles, he first must be rejected as the Jewish Messiah. And so if these people did in fact understand that he was the true Messiah, then An effort by them to try to save him from the cross, an effort to try to make him the king, would not have been conducive at this time to his mission or his message. And Jesus might have been moved by that request because it wouldn't be long before the Gentiles would come to him in in great numbers. And I don't mean personally why he was here on the earth, but they would be one to the salvation of Christ by the preaching of the apostles. Many, many Gentiles would come, and that would cause the, the gospel to be spread throughout the entire world at that time. But Jesus was not yet their Christ. And I mean by that, he wasn't their fleshly Christ. He wasn't intended for them in this way. He must come to his own people first as their king. And I think that's the answer to the problematic dilemma that we have sometimes of why Jesus did not spend more time than he did among Gentile people. Jesus conducted no campaigns in Gentile territory, no revival campaigns or trying to win mass numbers of people to him. That wasn't his mission. He said, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so we find people like the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15 that was saved. And the woman in John 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that was saved. That wasn't usual. Those were anomalies in the ministry of Christ. But I don't have to concern myself with that. I don't have to try to reconcile that and say, why doesn't he spend more time with them? Why is he trying to win those people? I don't have to reconcile that because I very clearly, I think, understand this, that God is sovereign in salvation. And if these are people that have been led by the Holy Spirit to find their salvation in Christ, then the desire for him would be there one week later. If that desire has been put into them by the Holy Spirit, then that desire is going to last throughout a week because a thirst and hunger and thirst for Christ that won't last for a week is not a true hunger and thirsting for eternal life. That thirst stays there for all of eternity. So I think the sovereignty of God and salvation is often missed in that regard. I don't think that we ought to put people off today when they want to hear about Christ. Certainly not. I mean, it should be our business to give people uh, the message of Jesus Christ and do whatever we can to to bring them to the Lord. So we're not trying to uh, put off people today. So we want to give them the the message of Christ, teach them and let them know that that they can be saved. And that's because we're not living before the cross. We're living after the cross. But I also believe this, that God's purpose for any sinner, the salvation of any sinner, is not contingent upon my activity. God saves in his time, not mine. Now, God uses us for salvation, but we're not the key component in this. It's God's plan and God's purpose when he saves. So this seems to be a very strange reaction to a strange request, but... Jesus has his purpose in waiting. He must deal with the rejection of the Jews before he opens up the way of salvation to Gentiles. Now, his death would bring life to his nation. 
and also to Gentile people. But those things have to come in the right order. Now, secondly, we see in this passage the the revelation of the cross. In verse number 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Going down to verse number 32, we read, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now when Philip and Andrew came to Jesus with this Grecian request, they were greeted with another lesson about the cross. Jesus said, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And there is an unmistakable truth that is found in that statement. And the truth is that Jesus Christ himself was in control of the hour of his death. The whole timing of his death, he is in control of that. Now sometime before this, Jesus was far north in Israel, in Caesarea Philippi, a long way away from Jerusalem. And that's where he received Peter's confession. And that's when he started to very plainly teach the disciples about his death. And from there, he started to make his way towards Jerusalem, arriving at the exact time of the Passover feast. As we'll see in our studies of Matthew during that time, Jesus was teaching the disciples, they were learning, but there was still a lot of confusion about what was to take place. How is this all going to work out? And it wasn't until after his death and after the resurrection that the disciples began to understand all of these things that Jesus said to them before he was crucified. Now we think again about those Grecians that wanted to see Jesus Do you think that they would have properly understood everything that Jesus came to do when his own disciples that walked with him, ate with him, slept with him, were with him every single day, they didn't understand it all yet? How are these Greeks going to understand it? They couldn't see Jesus as the Savior of the world, as the King, and what he was about to do if his disciples could not. Now notice how he illustrates the truth in verse number 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So Jesus, in his death, would bring forth much fruit. And that fruit is Jewish salvation for all who would believe in him and also Gentile salvation for those that would believe in him. And so like a kernel of wheat, does not produce a vibrant plant with thousands of seeds until it's put into the ground, not until it springs to life do you see the fruit of that seed that's put into the ground. Well, Jesus was the kernel of wheat in that sense. They looked at him and they lived with him. They examined him. But there was no way they could see the glory of God in him. There, there, he was in the human body. He was veiled in the flesh. His glory was, was encapsulated in that human flesh. It was shut in. So just like they couldn't see a blossoming seed or blossoming plant in the seed, neither could they see the glory of Christ in his flesh. As we get to the transfiguration, we find that Peter, James, and John were able to see a glimpse of that glory but they were told not to tell anyone about it. That, that's really a remarkable thing, isn't it? Uh, there, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and Jesus says to them, Now, you've seen this. You've seen Moses and Elijah. Don't tell anybody about it. 
What's the very thing that they wanted to do? Let us tell somebody about this. I mean, who's ever seen anything like this before? The glory of God and seeing two great prophets from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, and he says, don't tell anybody about it. He wouldn't let them tell until after he'd been raised from the dead. The death has to come first. Everything is hinging on the death of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the truth that we can draw out of this? Well, I think part of the message here is that no one can truly know Jesus until they see him dying on the cross. It is totally fruitless for us to talk about the life of Christ and all the good things that he did if it's not in relation to or as a precursor to the cross of Christ. Now, there's a lot of talk today about what would Jesus do People are told, stop and consider your actions. Before you do that, you think about acting like Jesus. What would Jesus do? What, what You think about this. But what does that really matter in the scheme of eternity if that question is not tied to the cross of Christ? Jesus did everything right. He did everything good. But there isn't anyone that's saved by his perfect life. We're not saved by any activity that he did during his life. We're saved by the death of the cross. And I'm not saying that the perfect life of Christ was not necessary, because it absolutely was, but that perfect life means nothing to us if Jesus did not get to the cross and die for our sin. So the death is the thing that all of this hinges on here. The death of Christ is what's going to bring all of this to fruition. Jesus did thousands of miracles while he was here on the earth. But where were those same thousands of people at the end of the Passion Week. I mean, weren't there enough people healed in Israel, enough people fed, enough people delivered from demons? Aren't there enough of them that if all of them had stood with Jesus in Pilate's judgment hall, that Pilate never would have let those false charges stand against him? There were enough people, if they had all known him as Savior, that they never would have allowed that to happen. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it actually paints a dismal picture of salvation through miracles. This morning we were talking about the millennial kingdom and how that this perfect righteous government of Christ is going to come upon the earth, but as soon as Satan is released from the bottomless pit after that thousand years, he goes about immediately to deceive the nations, the very same ones that have lived under that perfect government. They've seen all the things that Christ can do. That's not enough. Miracles don't save people. And evidently, there were only a few incidents among all the people that Jesus healed that were saved at the same time. Now, it's interesting that that many preachers preach it that way, that every healing miracle that Jesus performed was also a saving miracle, result of saving faith. But they weren't. Only a few came to Jesus in saving faith. And that's why you don't see more than just a few standing with him or even believing in him at the time that he went to the cross. So do you see the truth that's being taught in the passage? We are never going to see Christ. We are never going to understand him. We're never going to realize what he did. We're not going to know him until we come to know him at the cross. We have to see him in his death before we can be given life. Now there's a third thought that's brought out in this passage, and that is the requirement of service. Before you can come to Jesus and see Jesus, you have to meet him in the death of the cross. And before you can enjoy eternal life in him, you must die. 
Listen to what he says in verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now Jesus expands upon the illustration of burying this kernel of wheat into the ground to the necessity of taking everything that you are and burying it. He says you must die to yourself. We we studied that this morning. You have to be willing to give up your life to him. You must be crucified in Christ. And have you ever noticed that in Scripture when Jesus talks about salvation that he always puts it in those terms? Can you be saved by simply asking Jesus to come into your heart? Is that biblical terminology? No, because you'll never find that one time in Scripture where anyone was told, ask Jesus to come into your heart. Now, you'll say, well, that's strange. That's very strange. But you know that salvation is always put in terms of losing your life, of hating your life, of sacrificing your life, of surrendering your life. That salvation is won by toil and tears and effort and striving and endurance and pain and suffering. And you say, well, I never heard a Baptist preacher say that before. Maybe you haven't been listening to real Baptist preachers. Because that's what we've always taught. That true belief in Jesus Christ is a commitment to his lordship. You must come to him on his terms for salvation or you've not received it. Isn't this what Jesus said? Didn't we just read the words of Jesus here? If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also what? A servant. My servant shall be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So is there anyone who receives salvation who says, Jesus, save me, but I'm not going to serve you? Is it possible to be where Jesus is if he is not your Lord? Can you imagine that there are going to be people in heaven that have not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Is there a special section of heaven that's set aside for all of these people that, that died without ever having made a commitment to Jesus Christ? And if the Father does not honor you, are you really saved? You see the fallacy in saying that a person can be saved without surrendering to Christ? Now, I'm not taking big issue with anybody who says, well, when you're dealing with somebody in salvation, you say to them, well, ask Jesus to come in your heart. That's not my issue. It's not my issue at all. I'm not saying don't say that. I'm saying is you have to understand that salvation is more than just a simple of asking Jesus in your heart. There has to be an attitude of faith and commitment to him as your Lord. You can't come to him and intend to live the life that you had before. You can't come to him and say, I'm saved and I, and I, want, to be, uh, I want to be saved from all of my sins, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Real faith always produces something. So am I saying then that salvation is won by good works? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that real salvation always yields a servant's heart. Real faith changes people. See, faith is not an insurance policy. It's not, a, it's not a, a fire insurance policy. And that's so often the way that it's taught, that salvation is our get-out-of-hell-free card. But that's not what salvation is. A faith that saves is a faith that produces. The kernel of wheat dies, and then it brings forth much fruit. God does not have non-germinating seeds. When I was young... 
My dad used to plant a garden. And we would go, I hated planted gardens, by the way. Uh, I'll never plant a garden. That's not going to happen with me. But he wanted to plant a garden. And so we would go to the farmer's supply store and we would buy the seeds. And I noticed on those packages of seeds that they would say 80% germination. And some of them would say 90% germination. And that means that that feed store guaranteed, or that seed store guaranteed that 80 to 90% of these seeds would produce a plant. You plant them and you do everything right, they're going to produce a plant. They guarantee the germination of those seeds. They're not bogus. I mean, these are good seeds. Well, here's the thing about God. All of his seeds are 100% germinating. There are no seeds of God that don't produce the plant. The plant is going to, or that seed is going to bring forth some kind of fruit to eternal life. And so if you come to Christ and you die in Christ and your life is hid with Christ, God says you will bring forth fruit. And if you look at your life and you see no fruit, and if you're not willing to serve Christ with your life, then you aren't His. It's as simple as that. And so on the first Sunday of the new year, this is a very good time. Taking the Lord's Supper is a very good time for us to look at this because before we take the supper, the Bible says that we are to examine ourselves. And I can't imagine what it would be that we would examine if it's not the fruit that's produced for Jesus Christ. What are you going to examine? That's the very thing. What have you done for the Lord? You examine your life. Where's You have sin in your life. You need to get rid of that because that hinders your work for the Lord. And so if you see in your life that you have a cesspool of sin rather than a well of water springing up into everlasting life, then you need to go to the cross. You need to go back to the cross. See Jesus at the cross. And make sure that you get a good look at him there. Make sure you see what he did for you there. Because when you see Jesus on the cross and you see him lifted up and you see the glory of God in him, folks, it will change you. It has to change you. Now, some of you know exactly where you are. When I say, I'm saying this generically. I'm not pointing at somebody, and I'm just telling you, there may be some of you here that know where you stand in this, that you are not really servants, and you know that you've not really surrendered to Christ. You're going through the motions of Christianity. There is no fruit. And that tells, tells on you. It says that you don't really know Christ. And now is a good time to get that right. This is an excellent time to get that right. Because you know this, there is nothing that we do in Berean Baptist Church, there is not one single thing we do that says more about the cross than what we're about to do tonight. This is the memorial supper that Jesus instituted to show people his death. And that's where we have to see him. We must see him in his death. And we, we partake of these elements of the supper, that, that bread that's broken, that's Christ's body that's broken for us, the, the, the fruit of the vine that we drink, that's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the remission of our sins. And when we partake of it, that is the ingestion of the life of Christ for the salvation of our souls. And as I explained that this morning, we're not talking about literally eating the flesh of Christ or literally drinking the blood of Christ like Roman Catholicism does. We're not changing anything here. These are symbols. They're signs of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we partake of those and we ingest them. And symbolic, we're saying we are ingesting the life of Jesus Christ. And so this supper 
is a look at his death. He died so that we might live. Death comes before life. Jesus didn't speak to these Gentiles, not yet. They wouldn't have understood him. They would have understood him. Uh, he had to die. He had to be risen from the grave first. And then they would be able to see what he came to do. And that's what he did. He went to the cross. He died. And he did arise from the grave. And because he did that, he is able to, and we are able to, invite everyone to come to him for salvation. He simply says, believe me. And when you have true faith in him, it's going to lead you into those very things that we talked about in Matthew 16, 24, 25, 26 this morning, and also in the very passage that we've read right here in the book of John. This is what it will produce in you if you have true faith in Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, and we will in just a few minutes before we partake of the supper, examine yourselves. Very solemn command that is given to us in Scripture. Examine yourselves before you partake of this supper. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for this memorial supper that we take tonight. It speaks to us about the death of Jesus Christ. And as your word says, it reminds us, we are to be reminded of it, that you are coming again. And our lives must be right, our hearts must be right, they must be changed, we must be surrendered to you in all ways, shapes, and forms, that we might be the servants that you want us to be. Where you are is where your servants are. Impress that upon the people of this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.